Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. I just spoke with Minghui Hu about his new book, China's Transition to Modernity, The New Classical Vision of Daijian. This came out with the University of Washington Press just this year in 2015. This is a book that contributes to a number of different fields. It's not only a contribution to um, Chinese history, uh, the history of Chinese classical scholarship and intellectual history specifically, um, but it's also a very meaningful contribution to how we understand the history of Chinese science and technical knowledge, and also how we understand global history um, specifically, and especially in the context of the engagement over technical knowledge Um, religious um, ideology, and all of the kinds of textual and discursive practices with which those um, conversations and debates were taking place. So what Minghui does is he brings us into a very particular case study that focuses on a really fascinating individual, and you'll hear more about him later on. This is Daijian. But he gives us the framework in order to understand what per, why Daijun is so important, first of all, what his particular contributions um, have been to a number, again, of different fields and strands of historiography, and how we might use this particular focus and case study in order to think anew and think again about some of the assumptions that we're making, not just about um, Daijun as a figure, but also about um, global history of science and Chinese science in particular. So it's a really, really interesting book. It was, of course, a pleasure to talk with Minghui about it, and I hope you enjoy. And as ever, thanks very much for listening and making time for the channel. I'm here today to talk with Minghui Hu about his new book, China's Transition to Modernity. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Minghui, and thanks for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it. My pleasure. (laughs) So, Minghui, let's start off at the beginning. Um, specifically, how did you come to work on the history of China and, and to this particular period of Chinese history specifically? I was um, trained in the science and technology studies program at Virginia Tech when I first arrived in North America. And I came to realize that that is not something I really loved and uh, not something I can... Uh, devote the rest of my career to. So I um, decided to do something with China. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I searched for a national program, you know, nationally to find a program that I can fit in. And that's when I went to UCLA, in the Chinese history program. And that's how I began, uh, uh, began studying Chinese history. Why this particular period? Why the Qing specifically? At first, when I arrived at UCLA, I proposed to study something like the controversy between science and religion uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. And as I uh, dug in further and further, I found out that um, 
the problem, the issues can be traced back to 18th century. And so as I further study and with uh, Ben Elman and other faculties like Ted Porter and Bob Westman um, at UC San Diego, I found out that uh, um, it is actually more interesting to uh, 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 unravel a lot of issues that the Jesuits, the, uh, the, the European missionaries, brought in uh, in the 18th century. So that's when I moved back to 18th century. Great. So the book that we're talking about today, in fact, does focus on the 18th um, and to some extent the 19th centuries, and it takes an individual, right, primarily, although we'll meet a lot of people along the way, it takes an individual, Daijun, as a case study um, to look at broader transformations in classical scholarship, in technical methodologies, in politics, and in their relationships in the Qing. And there's a lot more going on as well that we'll cover in the hour to come. So how did you come to focus on that in particular? Why Daijun? And, you know, the other figures um, surrounding this and why this particular case study to explore what you were just talking about. So in my dissertation, I um, my ambition was to really uh, examine all the materials brought in by European missionaries. But what I found out after I finished my dissertation was that um, uh what is more pointed and um, consequential is to find out how the Chinese classical scholars themselves um, coped with the Jesuit legacy. Um, and so when I first arrived, uh, joined the faculty at UC Santa Cruz, I decided to largely abandon the structure of my dissertation and started anew, focusing on Dai Zhen as a person, his career, his advancement of classical scholarship as a way of structuring my book. And that's how I came to it. So why is so your... This is great because you're totally anticipating what I was going to ask you about the transition, <laughs> right? From dissertation to book. So that's an important shift from dissertation to book. Why did you decide on that? Um, why shift to a focus for the book um, that really centers around a kind of practical, practical, technical, social, political biography of a figure? And what kind of work did that structure and that focus let you do in the book that you didn't, um, that you weren't able to do in the dissertation? I was fortunate enough to have two years as a Mellon postdoctoral fellow at University of Chicago to really think about how I would like to proceed from my dissertation. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point, when I was in Chicago, I um, ran my idea with many, many people. Um, and especially the idea of the so-called Western learning. And at that time, I actually wrote a piece and later published in Chinese, is how do we periodize the idea or what is considered Western learning from 18th century all the way to 20th. Uh, uh, after I'd done that survey and... Um, um, the survey of how the Chinese scholars were considered as foreign knowledge 
for the course of 200 years, I realized that um, um, the entire uh, uh, landscape of this issue is just too big for a book to handle. Even if I only consider the first stage, which was uh, mostly uh, the missionaries from the Society of Jesus, uh, from the end of the 17th century all the way to the end of the 18th century, that is still um, the scope of coping with uh, all this knowledge is still too big. Mm-hmm. Once I came to realize that, I... Um, um, search for a new focal point, which was also a chapter in my dissertation uh, to 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 address Dyson's um, uh, ritual knowledge and technical methodology. I decided to settle on Dyson as a person with um, very um, competent ability to cope with all this mathematical astronomy and other technical knowledge and combine them into very high level of the classical knowledge he achieved. So I realized that this person was the perfect focal point for me to organize this book, and that's how I did it. So one of the things that we learn in the very first chapter, which introduces Daijen as a figure, is that the way that you are conceptualizing the importance of Daijen, right, the way that you are um, contextualizing him within a larger historiographical frame, is importantly different from the ways that some important figures in the past have done this. And those differences are, I think, important for us to understand in order for us to appreciate the historiographical contribution that you're making to um, you know, to Daijen studies specifically, but also to more broadly how we place and understand this figure within a larger history of technical, intellectual, scientific, and political knowledge in this period. So yes. let's maybe start there. Like for you, what are some of the most important ways that the book departs from previous um, historiography that understands Daijen and his significance? Well, first of all. Um when I decided to focus on Daizen, um, and I did a quick search in the Chinese periodicals, I put in Daizen's name, and like 300 to 400 entries showed up right away. So that is a well-known figure in Chinese scholarship. And um, if you survey the Japanese scholarship, Daizen is all over the place. Mm-hmm. And there's no, there was, there was no single monograph dealing with this person in English. Um, there was a book on Zhang Xuechen, which was very influential and was a very good book. But um, if you survey the entire early modern China and find the most important thinker in early modern China, we found very little monographs devoted to very specific and important individuals back then. So in the sense that I decided to focus on Dai Zen to organize the book, it is um, 
uh, already very different from current um, 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 English scholarship uh, on cultural and intellectual history of early modern China. So that's number one. Number two is I um, like to um, um, distance myself from most Chinese and Japanese scholarship, which they most of them uh, uh, would structure Daizhen in terms of how he uh, was placed in in relation with Neo Confucianism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a wrong move, but it has been going on for so long. <laughs> so uh, what I try to do is to link Daizhen's classical scholarship with what they consider as a foreign knowledge, the European, brought, brought in by European missionaries. That link, to link the high-minded classical scholarship and sometimes consider very close-minded evidential scholarship in 18th century China and made a direct link with the European missionaries is something that I I think that's quite um, different from the existing scholarship. Now, you mentioned, um, and you use this terminology in the book as well, early modernity, right? You're talking about early modern China. And um, since you've talked about being interested in periodization, right, and having written about periodization, can you speak very briefly to why, for you, early modern is a useful rubric within which to situate Daijun and, and these phenomena? Right, so basically I'm asking you, the, mm-hmm. like, why early modern and not the <laughs> imperial question, right, which is what I get all the time, so I'm just going to put it on you now. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'd love to address that issue. Okay. So uh, the uh, when people debated this issue, uh, it's about teleology. It's about, you know, uh, and that's the main attack on early modernity is you are anticipating, you are assuming there's uh, a, a, a modern China. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happened in modern China? And we trace back to the earlier period to find the roots and eventually would develop into modern China. I think that is um, uh, not what I'm doing here. Mm-hmm. What I'm doing here is to view early modernity as and um, both a, 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 a temporal concept and also uh, a multi uh, also there's a multi uh, multi-directionality built into it which means this specific way of Daizhen thinking and all the early modern conditions in which Daizhen scholarship could be possible could develop into many directions not directly to modern China and in many ways I want to make it very clear in this book that Daizhen's ways of thinking could lead China to many directions. But unfortunately, when uh, we got to 20th century, we reinvented Daizhen into someone who's completely different, uh, completely different from who he was. 
And in fact, you mentioned specifically um, in this first chapter that one of the things, one of the ways that he's reinvented is by Husher as a kind of prophet of intellectual modernity, right? And the previous scholarship has really focused on Diogen's connection to individualism. And the book is doing something very different. So he had a political vision, as you're showing here, and it was derived from his scholarly methodology. This methodology, right, it becomes the groundwork for a new political philosophy. And the book takes that methodology and his technical accomplishments very, very seriously as an important part of his history. Yes. So let's get right into it. Okay, so the story of Daijan, as you tell us in Chapter 2, begins at a moment in 1664 when Yang Guangxian denounced the Jesuits as seditious foreigners. That's in the, the words of that chapter. And it ends also in the words of this chapter at the moment when Dai's legacy provided the intellectual framework for a work called The Biographies of Astronomers and Mathematicians around 1800. So the chapter begins at the beginning so that we can understand the context um, within which Dai Zhen um, enters so that we can understand really what was um, important and controversial and germinal about what he was doing. Mm-hmm. So part of an important part of that context has to do with missionary operations in China. Mm-hmm. Now, there are constraints, as you describe here, on missionary operations in China. Those have to do with state rituals, with cosmography, with astronomical accuracy, and with politics. So in this context, um, for listeners who may not be familiar with this literature, why is mathematical astronomy so important? And why does the Qing court early in the story briefly, if you can, adopt Mm -hmm. a Jesuit approach to mathematical astronomy? For historians of science, uh, this is a well-known episode. Mm -hmm. And this has been debated for a long time because this is usually considered as um, the first wave or first wave introduction of uh, Western science into China. Mm-hmm. And Joseph Needham, as a pioneer, um, argued that um, up to this point, the Chinese science was ahead of the West until 17th centuries, when Jesuits brought science and, 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 and China just just went downhill and, and lagged behind. So, uh, this specific point is well known for historians of science and people have been talking about it for a long time. Okay. So the issue now uh, I address in my book is uh, not why um, China failed to adopt modern science for the first time. What I'm trying to argue is that what sort of uh, mathematical astronomy was brought to China and how Chinese scholars or officials themselves were trying to use it for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. Given this framework, I, um, I look at the technical disciplines brought into China and how the Chinese, well, at that time, Manchu Emperor. Yeah, and <laughs> the Manchu Emperor and Chinese scholars alike were clearly trying to um, appropriate these technical disciplines for their own purpose, the purpose for us, for astronomical accuracy in order to perform political rituals correctly. They were clear, clear 
utilitarian aspects of how they want to use this technique, technical experts. But as a consequence, of course, a lot of new knowledge was brought in. And what was the consequence of that? And the consequence of that was significant for the classical scholars later on. And that's why I started this book with this very specific um, event on Yang Guangxin. Now, one of the things um, that you're mentioning already in your engagement with this part of the book is something that I just want to mark for listeners. So one of the things that the book does um, that listeners who are not familiar with the historiography of the history of Chinese science um, uh, might not know is the book is actually not just giving us these, this story, it's also giving us a different way of thinking about and writing about and understanding the historiography of Chinese science. So um, one way that that's already come up implicitly is that you know there is this narrative of Chinese versus Western that kind of comes from you know, Needham's work, you know, all props to Needham, mad props to Needham, but, you know, like we've kind of moved on, um, that you're showing actually in a later chapter of the book, this discourse and this language of Chinese versus Western is actually a construction. And it's a construction bot that's, you know, kind of motivated um, in very particular ways by Chinese scholars, by very particular Chinese scholars <laughs> who are using this in a very particular circumstance. So even this dichotomy that listeners and readers may come to the book with and assuming, I think the book is doing a really good job of asking us to subvert and to see as a product a very particular historical trajectory that Chinese scholars were very intimately involved with and had a lot of agency in producing. So, yeah, great. So, um, so we have this larger context, and at the end of the chapter in 1664, um, this figure, Yang Guangxian, goes on the attack against foreign missionaries and accuses them of sedition. Now, this is a really serious charge. Um, so what's the outcome of this that brings us in, that brings us further? So what's the, what do we need to understand about the immediate outcome of this to um, understand how to bring Daijian into this picture? Okay, so Yang Guangxin's attack was at first successful. Uh, he brought down the missionaries in a Qing court. Um, but it, but the missionaries came back, and uh, they did not just come back. They came back and they set the entire agenda for the Manchu emperors and uh, for the, the the astronomy bureau in the court of uh, how to um, understand and appreciate uh, the Jesuit sciences in China. And those terms and um, seriously troubled a lot of uh, Chinese scholars, especially classical scholars. So that, that's the consequence. The Jesuits came back after this attack and set new agenda. And those new agenda became the new battlegrounds for the classical scholars in China. Thank you. So that actually really nicely moves us into the next chapter as well. So the next chapter focuses, um, among other things, on a really fascinating figure um, that's part of this Jesuit history. And this is a French Jesuit, um, Joachim Bouvet. Now you describe him. So we'll get into why he's fascinating and he becomes this sort of really wacky story, right, um, in this larger storyline. But 
Um, you describe him early on in the context of what you call a cosmopolitan consciousness that had just appeared on the intellectual horizon. Now, since this language of cosmopolitan and cosmopolitanism recurs throughout the book, and it seems to be an important point that links up what you're doing with a larger conversation about global history in this period, can you talk very briefly about the importance of cosmopolitan and cosmopolitanism um, in terms of understanding this particular moment in your story? Yes. Um, in early modern world, most scholars um, from Western end of Eurasia to the Eastern end, they usually don't try to find a universal standard or truth. Instead, they're trying to track the origins mm-hmm. of how things came to be and how things are. Um, and what I'm showing here is Beauvais was partic- particularly interested in origins. But by, by tracing the common origins of China and Europe, he sort of ushered in a new discipline, a comparative studies of religions. And that's a lot of people would... Uh, 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 consider him as uh, the pioneer of the comparative history of the religions in Europe in so many ways. Sorry, go on. No, no, you go on. Oh, no, I was just going to kind of open that up a little bit. Okay, sure. So so one of the ways that he does this is by becoming fascinated with ancient theology, as you put it here. And he becomes convinced that he has the key to understanding Chinese philosophy um, and its divine messages. And this is something that he finds in the Book of Changes. Now, his colleagues, um, some of his colleagues are convinced at this point that he's gone super wacky um, Mm -hmm. and he's gone mad. But um, can you just briefly talk a little bit about that work that he's doing and and what's significant about that to lead us into what happens next in the story? Yes. So ancient theology was... um, um, an acceptable inquiry in Europe at that time. So when Bouvet accepted, was influenced, or uh, developed his idea within ancient theology, he was not considered crazy. Uh, but in the book, and I, I, I describe it, uh, 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 in the context of the rights controversy, so that's basically a controversy of how European missionaries practiced uh, Catholicism in China. And that, uh, 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 and that led to the clash between the Kangxi Emperor and uh, the Pope. And uh, the Jesuit missionaries got caught in between, and in this context, basically, Bouvet and other of his colleagues in China decided to um, um, appeal to the most important audience of their uh, evangelical practice, that was the Kangxi Emperor, the Manchu Emperor himself, rather than the Pope or um, the, the Catholic hierarchy in East Asia. So by doing so, Bouvet went so far that nobody actually dare to go by 
considering uh, the Book of Change actually has the truth and only messianic messages in the Bible. So that uh, I show it to some of my colleagues, some biblical scholars. They were surprised, even today, how far Bouvet actually went. So in that sense, you know, Bouvet was long forgotten as important intellectual figures in Europe. But he had emperor's ears, and he actually made a significant contribution in China, and all, all the materials were written in Chinese. So you've mentioned this rights controversy, right? And this is a, this is a big deal. This is a huge deal for the history of um, science in China, especially as it engages the relationship between Chinese scholars and uh, Manchu scholars and um, Jesuits, right? And you talk about this in Chapter 4. So one of the things that's happening here, um, there's a succession crisis um, after uh, we're at the end of Kangxi's reign, there's a conflict among the Jesuits. Like the Pope sends this envoy to the court. This guy Metzabarba, he's like, dude, you know, send the Jesuits back home. You know, the emperor is like, dude, you know, they don't want to come. Um, they're happy here, and there's this whole um, conflict among the Jesuits. Okay, so it's not it's not necessarily the case. Again, just to kind of further dis. Um, disassemble the idea of a binary, right? The Chinese versus the Jesuits, like just to further problematize that. It's not even the case that the Jesuits um, are all this kind of unified front um, at this point. That's right. So out of this, um, and as a result of what happens after Kangxi's death, a group grows up that's called, um, and that you call here the science faction. That's right. These are a group of Chinese mathematical astronomers who kind of repackage Jesuit science after Kangxi's death. And this becomes an important part of the story that lays the foundation for us to bring Daijen into the picture. So can you briefly talk about this science faction? What's most important for us to understand about what they were doing for us to understand how that forms a kind of foundation um, into which Daijen steps? I think a science faction is the most important part and the missing part uh, given the, the current scholarship of the political and intellectual history of Qing China. Because um, the Jesuits were gone after Kangxi Emperor died, right? Uh, the Yongzhen Emperor uh, took over the throne and basically changed the entire directions of how uh, he would tolerate or accommodate uh, European missionaries. So the Jesuits... Uh, 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 way of introducing the knowledge would now, uh, after uh, 1723, significantly limited and constrained. And who's going to preserve and carry on or uh, uh, continue um, the Jesuit legacy? Or, put it another way, all this translated texts, all this technical knowledge brought into China, were they completely forgotten? or were they um, uh, picked up in a different way and continue to be used? And if so, who used them? Who adopted them? Who continued to uh, change them and uh, advance or even improve this body of technical knowledge? The answer in the past was, we don't know, or, well, somebody did something, but we don't know exactly who did it. So what I did in 
what what I do in this book is to identify um, very influential scholars who experienced political ups and downs from Kangxi to Yongzheng period, and I um, um, uh, find out this the network of this group of scholars and uh, link them directly to Daizhen. So that's why it, uh, uh, it is important to consider the Yang Guangxian's attack on the missionaries, that missionaries dispute with, with a lot of scholars, and eventually the Jesuits were expelled from the court, and the Jesuit legacy had to be used by science faction, and the science faction would take the entire um, controversy and use of European knowledge to this very important scholar, Daizhen. So let's meet him. Let's meet him. <laughs> um, so we, we uh, move to chapter five, and here he is, right? He comes into the picture. Um, he comes from very modest beginnings, but he manages to achieve classical literacy despite um, a low social status that would otherwise put up a lot of barriers to attaining that level of classical literacy. So how does he do that? By um, learning classical text by himself. So, um, which was usually not encouraged by anybody in China. And therefore, Whoever attempted that usually failed. And Dai Zhen attempted that and succeeded by himself, by educating himself to achieve classical literacy. There was two consequences of this kind of self-taught classical literacy. Number one, he does not really follow the conventional classical interpretations um, of the canon, of the Confucian canon. And therefore, he invented new ways for him to understand all these very arcane, obscure words in the Confucian canon. By doing that, he came up with new interpretation. And he also ventured into a whole different areas of the classical text, usually conventionally ignore by classical scholarship or people would take it metaphorically. For example, the center star in the sky or um, the, the movement of Mars or stars. Why do those things matter? But they are in the classical texts. And Daizen actually took them literally and seriously and trying to find out why and what happened behind those classical texts. So elements of this story might initially strike um, readers or listeners, um, maybe listeners specifically, as um, kind of elements of another great man story, right? Like here's we have the story of this genius, and he was different from everybody, and he forged a new path, and it's a great man, and isn't that great, and he's a man, and he's great, and he's a genius, and he's great. Um, but the story that's told in the book doesn't do that. And the, one of the ways it doesn't do that is by showcasing the importance not of this individual genius, right, who was just so super great that he was able to do things that were new, 
That's not what this does. Instead, you're show you're showing the importance of a particular methodology. And this chapter shines light on and sort of takes us into and describes that methodology. So to understand how he made a name for himself, despite this um, sort of low social upbringing, despite all of these constraints on um, the you know resources he had available to him, despite being like super socially awkward, which we learn in the next chapter, which I loved him for actually. Uh, I brought back all kinds of all kinds of memories of my own experience, <laughs> not understanding social norms. But that's another story. Um, so despite all this, um, he made a name for himself. And to understand how that happened, we need to understand his methodology. And to do that, um, you introduce us to this letter that he sends um, that outlines his methodology for classical scholarship. There are three elements to this methodology that you outline. There's a lexicology overall assessment of the quality of classical research, and then something that becomes super important um, to the story, which you call technical analysis. Technical analysis incorporates um, lots of different things, etymology, geography, astronomy, mathematics, um, and it's very, very important. So can you, for listeners, introduce what this technical analysis is as it's manifest here for Digen, and what's important for us to understand about it? Yeah. So, um, before that, conventionally, most scholars would consider moral cultivation or sort of a moral goal to um, become a perfect Confucian or perfect human being as the most important things for scholars. All the other tools... Uh, including etymology, you know, how to understand these words or how uh, things work. Maybe in ancient times, they have chariots, they have uh, weapons, and they have astronomy. But those are minor things. Those were trivial minor things that uh, sometimes would get in the way of your own pursuing of the moral goal. Dai Zhen turned it upside down. Okay. He basically despised the moral uh, moral goal and saying, "Look, those technical details would give you the whole picture of the classical world, and that's the most important part. If you pursue and understand these tiny details, eventually the big picture of the ancient world will emerge, and that's what we should do." And everybody else before him got it wrong, according to him. So why, despite being, you know, as we move into the next chapter and the next part of the story, despite being, um, you know, coming from a social realm that's not um, conventional, despite being a, a loner, super awkward, why is he listened to once we get to, you know, further into this story at the beginning you know, he, um, just to kind of set the stage a little bit, he mm-hmm. flees Huizhou and he goes to Beijing. And in Beijing, he is trying to introduce himself to all of these fancy, important people. And he's not having much luck. You know, you can sort mm-hmm. of picture this happening. Like, uh, you know, all of us, I'm sure, encountered office hours like like, like this. Um, mm-hmm. So eventually he meets another really important figure in the story, Qian Dashin. 
Chandashin does listen to him, does take him seriously, and this begins a you know a process of this social loner, awkward guy being taken seriously. Okay, so who is Chandashin, and <laughs> why is he taking um, Daijin seriously? And you know why do others do that as well? So Chandashin, um, by all measures, was a genius in 18th century China. He was the most brilliant guy, and he mastered everything properly. And uh, everybody admired him, and everybody considered him a superstar. So, by the time he moved to Beijing, uh, but he himself was a little bit awkward in his social background. You know, he has to marry into his wife's family. And uh, he has to prove himself so much. Um, but by the time, but he did prove himself. By the time he moved to Beijing, he was um, uh, the superstar there. Mm-hmm. And he was just waiting uh, to be to pass the highest level of the, the examination system, and then and then just be appointed to a, a certain job in the bureaucracy. So while he was waiting in Beijing, he uh, was bored. He decided to um, uh, take on something that he did not study before. And it so happened that he picked mathematical astronomy. He spent like a little bit less than two years studying mathematical astronomy. And he realized this was the lacuna, right? This is a, something that most people ignore. And this was so important because now, facing all this European knowledge, we need to, we need to advance this area in classical scholarship in order to uh, uh, fend off all this European challenge. He was, he was critically aware of that, but he only studied mathematical astronomy for only two years, he couldn't really completely unravel all his problems, technical issues in the classical, uh, in the Confucian canon. And then here came along the Daijin. You know, Daijin knocked on his door and he talked to him about everything he knows about mathematical astronomy. And Chen Daxin was just wowed by him. Mm-hmm. Here we go. These two guys met. And that changed the direction of the 18th century Chinese scholarship. Okay, great. Okay, so this uh, this gets us going. So they become, these two guys um, become part of a new wave of what you call technical literati. Mm -hmm. And they're undermining, um, in the words of this chapter, the putative superiority of European astronomy by championing a grand synthesis of classical knowledge. Now, what are, um, I mean, you talk here about Qian's uh, arguments against the Jesuits and against Jesuit knowledge. What were some of his arguments um, against uh, Jesuit mathematical astronomy and sort of what, what was the problem, right? What, was, what were the problems he was pointing out that this synthesis was going to um, help, help them solve? Yeah, well, Chen Daxin was um, very interesting, but let me point out first that <laughs> the Daijin and Chen Daxin actually did not agree with each other on how to uh, uh, um, criticize European knowledge. So, uh, so Dai Zhen sort of uh, was trying to uh, be low-key about it, uh, low-key about their disagreement, because after all, Chen was the only guy who really appreciated his work. And Chen Daxin was very vocal 
about the difference um, between his take on astronomy and uh, Jesuit's take on astronomy. The European missionaries, they focus on observations. They focus on their mathematical models, mostly focus, uh, based on the spherical trigonometry. But what Europeans did is they have a, a mathematical models, and uh, they uh, uh, use the mathematical models to predict the movements of celestial bodies. Um, and that is the most important part for the European missionaries. Uh, European missionaries. For Chen Daxin, what is most important is the historical records about uh, what's going on in the sky. So the European missionaries usually dismissed the long historical records about a celestial phenomena. And that really upset Chen Daxin. Chen Daxin went back to all the historical texts and traced all the important observations made by ancient Chinese. And he argues, why should we trust these foreigners over our ancient uh, practitioners or even sages' words on these issues? That was the fundamental difference. And this is like the case or the point in the story um, that I mentioned a little bit earlier where you're really showing that um, Chen and others are not just taking for granted, right, that there's this distinction between Chinese and Western methodologies. They're actually, as part of their argumentative strategy, they're fabricating this distinction um, in these kind of um, ethnological terms or ethnographic terms between Chinese and Western. So this becomes, you know, the production of that dichotomy as a very particular part of a very particular argumentative strategy that's got very particular political um, and social contexts becomes an important part of what's being created here. That's right. Because what Yadashin faced was this universal, legitimized knowledge sanctioned by the Qing court. And what he did, he played a very important part, and he and, he and his Suzhou scholars played a very important part by labeling this body of court-sanctioned knowledge as Western. Mm-hmm. So that's when something called Western learning was created. So as we move into the story, um, we move into a chapter that takes us into a very particular case study for understanding Daijin's methodology and the larger consequences um, that that methodology had for not just classical scholarship, but also for resolving some pretty weighty debates in this period. This brings us into a meeting between Daijin and Huidong. That's right. Another figure. Now, they had a very specific disagreement, and the chapter shows that understanding this disagreement helps us understand something important about the intellectual landscape of the 18th century. Now, this is a disagreement over something called the Palace of Light. Um, so to kind of um, just lay the foundation, what is, briefly, what is the Palace of Light, and why should we care? Palace of Light was... Um, at the center of the ancient polity. So in this, uh, the Chinese imagination of their 
ancient world. There were three dynastic houses, Xia Shang Zhou. So Zhou was the combination of the antiquity. It was perfect. It was the highest achievement. Everybody looked back to the Zhou polity as the guidance, as the highest achievement. And what's at the center of the Zhou dynasty polity that was this buildings at the center of the polity is called the Palace of Light. Hmm. But nobody knows exactly what it looks like, how should we build it, and how it works. Nobody knows. That's right. And so, so there, there were, thank you. So there were three different ways um, that were sort of predominant ways of understanding, not just what this thing looked like, but like what it was, you know, like what kind of function did it serve? Um, one way of understanding it was as an ancestral temple where the son of heaven would perform sacrifices to the cosmos and to the imperial lineage. A second way of understanding it um, was that it was a policy hall where the king managed his vassals and considered policy issues. And a third way of understanding it was as a cosmological palace. And this was a palace to which vassals were summoned so that the new ruler's mandate of heaven might be declared. Now, Dai believes that the Palace of Light serves this latter function, right? Yes. Um, and you take us into his technical method for resolving this issue. Now, I need to ask you to talk a little bit about this method because you compare him to Sherlock Holmes here. So in my completely objective methodology here, you know, anytime anyone mentions Sherlock Holmes, like I need to hear more about that. So what was his method for resolving this issue? And in what way is he like Sherlock Holmes? He focused on the details that nobody, everybody ignored and nobody cares. <laughs> and using that detail to turn the table upside down and then ravel the entire picture of the ancient polity. So in that sense, I think he's very much like Sherlock Holmes, but not full-blown Sherlock Holmes yet. But. The cocaine maybe wasn't so much part of the picture, let's hope. Or, you know, that's a whole other book, um, probably in another conversation. So, but what was, what was important about his methodology? Sort of, can you say a little bit about how the particular kinds of details he focused on um, helped him resolve this particular issue. And um, you talk later on in the chapter about the kinds of details that he mm-hmm. was um, uh, picking out or picking up on really kind of uh, being echoed in later developments of um, architectural archaeology. That's right. Especially. So can you talk a little bit about that? Floor plan. Okay. So the um, for... Nearly two millennia, nobody cared about a floor plan. And uh, even the, the grandmaster, Zhuji, say something about floor plan casually and dismiss it as something not very important. Because uh, who cares how many rooms uh, you have in this palace of light? And Dai then took on the floor plan and make it the entire case for his studies of the Palace of Light. He argues that the floor plan is absolutely essential because that's how Palace of Light becomes the cosmological palace. That's how the Palace of Light, as the center of the polity, is actually a mirror of the entire cosmos. It all comes down to the floor plan. That's his argument. Great. And how do we um, sort of, how might you articulate the way we understand 
the relationship between this methodology and later architectural archaeology, that's not about like a kind of teleological story, right? But that's about um, sort of a story about the specialization and the differentiation of disciplines in this period. I think you use this to point us to a way of understanding what's going on um, in Daijin's context that's very much about a particular ramification and solidification of disciplinary approaches. That seems like it's an important part of the story for us to understand in order for us to understand the way this fits into a larger early modern history. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually uh, one of my current projects. Uh, um, That is to say, how do we um, um, uh, map out or even uh, uh, misconstrue the um, different fields of technical methodology developed in the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, how do we map them onto modern disciplines? And we, uh, most scholars, most intellectual and cultural historians would have this mechanical ways, and historian of science as well, mechanical ways and one-to-one correspondence of these uh, fields of technical methodology and modern disciplines. And I would argue that's teleology. I would argue that's a historical understanding of the technical methodology developed by Daijin and his followers. But it's so convenient and so easy to just say, you know, uh, Daijin's uh, 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 study of words and lexicology is the predecessor and forerunners of the modern etymology in the 20th century. And people make that assumption. People um, operate on that assumption all the time. And I think that's a problem. It's a difficult problem, right? Because on the one hand, if you think of the kind of work that mapping does, mm-hmm. mapping shows us a path forward. That's right. Um, but then distinguishing between um, a kind of definition or a characterization of a particular field as a kind of mapping and, a, and that same characterization as a definition, right, of some That's kind right. of ontology, I mean, that those are really, really tricky um, distinctions to make. And so I think that's a really interesting uh, potential conversation to have. Mm-hmm. So as we move um, from here into the last chapter of the book, you move into a conversation about the broader consequences of Dai's methodology, which we just saw playing out um, in the previous chapter in really, really interesting ways. So you say here that technical know-how was, um, in the words of this chapter, a template permitting classical scholars to insert the Jesuit sciences into their understanding of the universe and was also an important component in deciphering ancient texts. And you give us here three major examples of some of the ways that Dai's classical vision um, in this way was used by the Qing state. Um, so you you take us through these three examples, which are all fascinating, and I will just very, very briefly lay them out and then ask you to perhaps choose one or two that you find particularly interesting and just open that up um, for listeners. So one of them is co- cosmological, and this is an example that looks at mathematical cosmology and the importance of the gnomon of the Zhou polity to cosmological justification of the Qing Empire. 
Another one is geographical, and you look at understandings of the book of documents and historical geography. The third one is social and also sartorial, right? And you look mm-hmm. at debates over the scholar's robe. So for you, which of these three is perhaps most immediately fascinating? And would you mind um, kind of opening it up a little bit for the listeners? Yes, um, this um, actually three projects that I intend to write more. Wow. Yeah, and uh, one of them actually is um, on its way to be published. The debate on the scholar's role has right. been, yeah, it will be published probably by the end of this year. Mm-hmm. So, um, so here I sort of uh, pack them very tightly and uh, very concisely, just trying to show this sort of um, this tripod structure that Chinese have been uh, considered as a fundamental structure to understand the. Uh, the individuals versus universe for millennia, right? So this is Tendiren. So it's cosmology, historical geography, and how scholars who bear the sole social responsibility in the Chinese politics would operate within this cosmos and this landscape of um, the Chinese world. And they themselves now, so what I argue is the Dai Zhen themselves now and his followers now take these three domains very seriously and realistically instead of take them as some sort of a moral ontologies. So Dai Zhen and his followers transform these three fields into a very concrete ways of studying the real things. And this takes them to a different world of scholarship and that vision had been partially adopted by the Qing state. Here's the interesting part. So the Qing state was not entirely um, uh, subscribing to the neo-Confucian ideology anymore. The Qing state actually adopted part of Daizen's vision as part of their ideology. And this is where I think the, um, the intellectual history and political history uh, intersect and uh, intersect in very significant ways, as I argue in this book. So very briefly, what does a scholar's robe have to do with this? Just for listeners, just to give them like a tiny little taste of, um, you know, what is he, what is a scholar's robe? What does fashion have to do with this story? Can you give us a tiny little taste of what you think might be most interesting about that particular case? Yeah, this case is interesting because it first emerged uh, in 11th century as a sort of a symbol of identity for the Neo-Confucians when the Neo-Confucian movement first started in the 11th century. And uh, through the Ming Dynasty, it was instituted as uh, the standard uh, fashion for scholars. The scholars should wear this to look like a scholar. And uh, after the Ming Dynasty fell in 1644, the scholar's role was banned by the new Qing dynasty, the new Manchu dynasty. Mm-hmm. But it was continued um, 
weren't throughout the 18th and the 19th century, but not in the obvious. Uh, they don't do it uh, uh, in public in, uh, to undermine the new Qing dynasty. So the Dai Zhen, and therefore, and then a bunch of scholars decided to, uh, uh, under Qing uh, under Qing state's uh, sponsorship, they want to take a closer look at uh, what the scholar's rope should look like. And they went back to the classical text and they figured out um, for three, 300 years, the Ming Dynasty, uh, all the scholars in Ming Dynasty got it wrong. The scholar's rope should not look like the scholar's rope uh, in the Ming Dynasty. It should look somewhat different in the way that it will not embody Chineseness. And uh, there's some details about how the rope should be constructed, which signify Chineseness and or or signify that it's universal cosmopolitan is not just a Chinese rope. Dai uh, Zhen went for the cosmopolitan way. So Dai Zhen argued that that uh, the rope should not look like what it was in the Ming Dynasty, and it should not embody a specific form of a Chineseness, and it should uh, 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 instead uh, represent uh, the universal of a Chinese integrity. And much, much more about that and all the other case studies can be found in that chapter. So, Minghui, we're now at the conclusion of our conversation, and there's, of course, a ton of material that we haven't talked about. Is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention uh, for listeners, though, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers? Uh, No, I think we cover all the basics. Thank you. Great. And now that we've um, talked about the book, now that the book is out, and congratulations on that, what's next for you? Um, You've already said a tiny little bit about um, some of the projects you're working on next, but what's what are you currently working on and what's inspiring you these days? I'm still continue. Uh, I'm still working on a few things um, like the scholar's robe, historical geography, but I'm I'm calling them lay confusions now, lay or lay Confucianism in 19th century China. So. Um, that is definitely one direction I'm going into. I'm writing proposals for that project, but I'm also um, writing a book, a new book, and I plan to finish that book in one or two years. Good for you. <laughs> Good this, for you. Yeah, this new book is called Becoming a Communist. Um, oh. It's about also one guy. I moved to 20th century. I need to finish this book as quickly as I can. <laughs> <laughs> so, so is um, uh, the subtitle is uh, it's about this guy Chi Chobai. Um, he was one of the Bolsheviks who was trained in Moscow and became a important communist leader in the 1920s and later got purged in the 1930s and captured by Kuomintang and executed in uh, 1935. So the book is called 
becoming a communist, and um, the subtitle is "Chicho uh, Bai's Radical Language of Social Revolution." Well, best of luck with that project, and thank you so much for making time to talk about this one, Minghui. It's really been a pleasure. My pleasure as well. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.